The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise, for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7, a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh, boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh, boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. And today we have Rob Henderson joining us. Rob, of course, the sociologist. Uh, he is in Cambridge, I believe. No, I always want to say Oxford. He's in Cambridge. Uh, social psychologist, rather, who has an extraordinary story and an extraordinary book. The book is called Troubled. I loved every second of reading it. I recommend it most strongly. Uh, I was privileged to be on the cover of this book. Uh, there it is. That is my, that is my, one of the, I said a lot of things about it because I could go on and on and on. And uh, I called him after I read it and I just let him know this was, this was really something. And uh, he will talk about it today. He's got lots of things to talk about, including uh, at his website, Rob K. Henderson, H-E-N-D-E-R-S-O-N dot com. Uh, Follow him at Rob K. Henderson on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll bring uh, Rob right in after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. So whether you have three minutes in the morning or 30 minutes to keep your face wrinkle-free, I want to introduce you to Gen 90, the new instant wrinkle cream from Genucel. Gen 90 instantly reduces the appearance of wrinkles anywhere you use it, around the eyes, the forehead, the crow's feet, the laugh lines, even the chin. It starts working in seconds. Never worry about your skin or your confidence again. Gen 90 technology is luxurious, nourishing, and silky smooth. And best of all, it starts working, as I said, in just seconds. 
And now you get Genucel XV, the collagen builder moisturizer with vitamin C and hyaluronic acid in a pure natural base for stunning results day after day. Our friends at Genucel have upgraded Susan's personalized skincare bundle to include their brand new Gen 90 for immediate effects at Genucel.com slash Drew. Before you go overseas to get harsh procedures for thousands of dollars, try that Gen 90 first. Order right now at Genucel.com slash Drew and get a free luxury beauty box that includes their incredible neck treatment and free shipping. That is Genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. As I said, Rob Henderson joining me in just a few minutes. Uh, and after I talk to Rob, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to be reunited with my old friend, Christina Ferrari, who has a new product she is uh, interested in telling you about, which is very, very, very interesting. Uh, it's our first time uh, diving into pet products, which my dog, if you see his nose pop up here, is driving me crazy for more of this stuff. So uh, am, I, am I overstating it? He is like driving me nuts. He was doing it the whole um, time before the show started. You could just hear, I had to like test the mics. I'm like, you. that dog is over there. He wants more. <laughs> he, he's right here. You'll hear his little claws. Tip, 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 tip. So anyway, Rob Henderson, uh, the book is Troubled. I may give him a full screen there, Caleb. Uh, it's, you can follow Rob, robkhenderson.com, robkhenderson on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, he is an your I order you to follow him. Uh, he is full of great information. He is a a um, ex extraordinary. He's a voracious reader on these topics, and he shares some of the insights literally in the books. He'll underline stuff, take a picture of it, and put it up on Instagram. And I've learned a lot from following him. Please welcome Rob Henderson. There hey, Doctor Drew, great to be here. Good to see you, my friend. So t t I, I, I know you've been on the show before and you've sort of told your story, but let, let's kind of, because it's so specific to the book in particular, give them a brief encapsulation of your, your history and, and how it's reflected in the book and why you wanted to write the book. And, and one added thing is like what you're doing now. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the book covers, uh, you know, essentially the first 30 two years of my life, but with all of the boring parts taken out, the book covers my experiences in foster care. I was born into poverty. Uh, my mother was addicted to drugs. I never knew my father. Uh, and in fact, I think I, I just learned this piece of information. Uh, I don't know if we discussed this the last time I spoke with you, but I took this genetic ancestry test uh, last year. It was a 23 Me, and discovered that my father uh, was Hispanic uh, with ancestry from Mexico and Spain. And I never knew this, you know, in my whole entire life, my adult life, not knowing this about myself uh, because I'd never known my dad. And so three years old, I'm taken from my mother, uh, put into the foster care system in L.A., spent the next several years bouncing in and out of foster homes. Uh, eventually, I was adopted by this kind of working class family. We settled in this dusty town in Northern California called Red Bluff, uh, really low income area located in one of the poorest counties in the state. Um, a lot of drugs. This was in the late 90s. So the opioid crisis was just starting to take off. Um, and, you know, it, it was interesting. I kind of got a front row seat to witness the deterioration of a lot of working class and lower middle class communities. It was sort of, it was a broader pattern uh, that was going on. And I got to see it firsthand uh, in this part of California. My adoptive parents divorced shortly after adopting me. There was a lot of family drama. My adoptive father stopped speaking with me. Uh, a lot of financial catastrophes and uh, emotional hardship. My mother raised me for a time. She was a single mother. She fell in love with a woman. They separated. Uh, 
you know, on and on like this. And by the time I was 17 years old, barely graduated high school, and I knew that I was on a very bad path. I was looking at the outcomes of guys who were a little older than me. I had two jobs in high school. I worked uh, as a dishwasher uh, at a restaurant, and then I was a bag boy at a grocery store. And I would see the guys in their early, mid-20s, see where their lives were headed, and I realized I didn't want to live like that. Um, I saw my friends and you know the direction their lives were taking, and kind of on a half-impulsive whim, enlisted in the Air Force, got out of there, and you know that was a sort of on my way to uh, a different a different path in life. Sort of turned, started slowly started to turn things around for me. There were some hiccups and some missteps along the way, but uh, was in the Air Force for eight years, um, stationed overseas, and then from there managed to get into Yale on the GI Bill. Studied psychology, um, worked as a research assistant out at Stanford for a while. And then managed to get a PhD at Cambridge, uh, finished up a little over a year ago, my PhD. And yeah, now, I mean, most of my work is uh, on Substack. I'm an independent writer, but I'll occasionally contribute to other outlets. I had a piece recently in the Boston Globe defending the importance of the SAT and standardized testing, which Yale and a lot of other uh, elite institutions are eager to ditch. Some of them are slowly coming to their senses. I, I read recently that Dartmouth reverse that decision and they're starting to use the SAT again. MIT brought back the SAT, but it was a real mistake to eliminate standardized testing. Um, it's a luxury belief, which we can talk about later. Uh, and so that's, that's my, my main thing, promoting the book, doing some independent writing and occasionally contributing uh, to other outlets as well. Uh, and kind of unearth these insights that I've, I've read about uh, as a psychology researcher. Are you in academia now? I, you know, this, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. I have this affiliation with the new University of Austin out in Texas, this fledgling startup mm. university. Um, I'm a, what do they call it? They gave us a title, a founding faculty fellow out there. So I teach in the summers and I'm helping to sort of shape the curriculum and give my input, but I'm not attached to any sort of legacy institution. I saw, and I document this in the book, some of the uh, just surreal moments of, the political correctness and the dogma that has overtaken so many of the universities. And I saw it at Yale. I saw it again at Cambridge. And then privately, I have friends who are in academia, postdocs and early career researchers. And you either have to be very careful with what you say and color within the lines, uh, or uh, you have to leave. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. And I decided to take the path outside of academia and uh, you know, communicate my message uh, through these other platforms. Are you still living in the UK? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm in Cambridge now uh, on a visa, um, living out there. But I'm back and forth between the US and the UK all the time. I'll do some book promo stuff uh, soon out in the UK. I'm speaking at the Oxford Literary Festival. Um, I'm arranging to deliver uh, a lecture at the University of Cambridge based on some of the topics in my book. So, you know, I, I got a PhD for a reason. I like this stuff. I am kind of a nerd at heart in some ways. And I talk about that in the book. You know, I always loved reading and learning and you know, you know, I'd listened to Loveline back in the day, Dr. Drew. And of course, I always loved the sort of the comedy part of it and all of the interesting and crazy wild stories from the callers. But I always loved the part two where you would communicate with the, with the listeners and sort of speak from an area of expertise. And that always appealed to me, too, of just having research and science-based knowledge. And so even though I'm not in academia, um, I'm still, you know, have, have, a, have a foot in and have a, a foot out. And so we talked to, it's, I never thought of this, but we talked to a lot of the 
kinds of people that you chronicle in this book, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as you say, it's the deterioration of these working class families, the abandonment, the abuse, the chaos. I mean, that was on in the 70s and 80s. What, what, what Was it strictly an economic thing driving that? It felt like something of a lot more than just that, frankly. Yeah, I do think there was something in addition to the economic piece. I mean, that's part of it. But, you know, one of the statistics I cite in the book, in the preface, is that in the U.S. in 1960, 95% of children born in the U.S., regardless of socioeconomic status, were raised by both of their birth parents. This was 1960. Uh, and then if you fast forward to 2005, for the upper class, for people who were raised by college-educated parents who have white-collar jobs in safe neighborhoods, uh, it dropped slightly from 95% in 1960 to 85% in 2005. But for the working class, for people who have parents who didn't go to college, more blue-collar jobs, slightly more kind of economically impoverished, it dropped from 95% in 1960 to 30% in 2005. And so this is a massive disparity that occurred over the ensuing decades post 1960. And there were poor people 60 years ago too. Um, and yet they still had families and intact marriages. And so to me, this suggests there is something else going on, uh, an issue of culture, of values, of role models, of the message that young people receive from the culture. Um, and I cite research as well in the book uh, indicating that it's not just poverty that contributes to detrimental outcomes for kids. So, you know, this is a consistent finding in developmental research, evolutionary psychology research, that the link between childhood poverty and detrimental outcomes in adulthood, things like uh, likelihood of incarceration, risky behaviors, substance abuse, teen pregnancy, um, the link between childhood poverty and those outcomes, it's kind of tenuous. Some findings show a small correlation, some there's none at all. Uh, but the link between childhood instability and those detrimental outcomes, this is a, there's a strong and reliable statistical relationship there. And childhood instability is measured uh, with variables like uh, the, the question in these scales, they ask people the extent to which they experienced things like uh, how many different homes they lived in growing up, frequent relocations. Were you raised by two parents? Were you raised by a single parent? How many divorces did you experience as a kid? How many different romantic partners did your single parent that you were living with uh, have in the home? And essentially, how much day-to-day -day chaos and disorder was there in your day-to-day -day life? I took this childhood instability scale, and unsurprisingly, probably any foster kid who takes a scale like that they're going to score well into the top 1%. I scored in the top 1% um, because I essentially maxed out on every question. How many times were we relocated? Was there divorce? Was there, you know, how many different par partners and so on? It was like, you know, nine out of 10, nine, 10 out of 10, whatever. And, um, and so that relationship there to me suggests that there is something beyond just uh, economics alone. And when these researchers control for socioeconomic status, they still find a link between instability and detrimental outcomes in adulthood. And, you know, by the time I got to college, I met people like this, people who had come from relative material affluence. It's rare, but it does occur that people who do come from sort of more well-to-do backgrounds, but there, there may be alcoholism or addiction or divorce or, you know, there's some family drama and they ship the kid off to a boarding school. And so the kid doesn't really have a lot of safety and security. A lot of those kids will end up having difficulty as well, despite growing up, you know, well off and affluent. And so it really is, uh, there's, there's this family piece, the safety piece, the emotional security piece that we often overlook and we retreat to these discussions of poverty and inequality. 
because I think oftentimes people don't want to encroach into the territory of values. You know, it makes people feel judgmental if they start talking about family and parents and it feels safe to talk about money and poverty. Um, but I hope with this book and some of the writing and other findings that I discuss that we can talk a little bit more about, you know, actually kids need something beyond just material sustenance alone uh, in order to flourish and to thrive. And this was something that I learned the hard way uh, when I was growing up. And, you know, by the time I enlisted in the military and so on, it was something that I had to slowly and gradually pick up on my own and piece together. You told me the military really saved you, but then it was your smarts that kept going. The, uh, you, you know, this is a good way, I think, to back into the luxury beliefs. You're really describing an elite who behaves in one way because they think it's important and it's the way to raise healthy children. This elite sits up on high and does what it thinks is right, but tells the non-elites, no, 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 you should do it a different way. Uh, and if you do do it a different way, we're going to put policies and a culture in place that supports whatever it is you want to do, even though we wouldn't dare do it ourselves. Isn't that the basis of luxury beliefs? Yeah, there is this element of duplicity. Some of it, I think, is conscious. Um, I think a lot of it is born out from good intentions, but it has these catastrophic consequences for people who aren't in uh, an environment of abundance where you know you can make a series of mistakes in your life and there will be sort of nets around you and you have a lot of cultural and social capital. And so luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the affluent while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And a core feature of a luxury belief is that the believer is sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. And so, you know, one way to think about this is, uh, you know, I, I don't know who originally coined this phrase of, you know, the luxury belief class. They, they walk the 50s and talk the 60s. You know, they behave in one way. Uh, they'll get married and live in a safe, low-crime area and teach their kids the value of hard work and uh, determination and grit and studying and those kinds of things. But then publicly, they'll say, uh, you know, marriage is outdated, it's passe. I had these conversations with uh, graduates of Yale and other elite universities where they'll say like, you know, why are we talking about marriage? Why do people talk like, are we still living in the 1950s? Like, why do people care so much about monogamy? Isn't it outdated? Like, we should evolve as a society beyond this weird patriarchal institution. But then I would ask them, well, how were you raised and how did you grow up? And every single time without fail, they were raised by both of their parents. And then when I would ask them about how they plan to raise their own kids, they would say, yeah, you know, I was kind of raised in that conventional family structure and I'll probably do it for my kids. But I do think like as a society, we need to find a way to move beyond it. And so what I heard when they would say this was I benefited from this age old institution. Uh, and that led me to study at a place like Yale. Um, and I plan to carry this benefit forward for my own children. But then my official public position is that you shouldn't do this, this thing that was clearly advantageous for me and that I plan to, uh, you know, uh, uh, supply for my own family. And there are other cases like this as well of, you know, the defund the police movement of other, but to go back to the marriage question, you know, these aren't just anecdotes. There is interesting survey data uh, that people with college degrees are the most likely to say 
that two-parent families are unimportant. 75% of college graduates say two-parent families are unimportant for raising kids, the vast majority. But then, so that's what they say. But if you look at what they do, where are they getting that idea from? Where, where, where the, yeah. anybody actually works with kids knows it's not so. Anyone that's, yeah. I mean, anyone that's ever done any psychology work, you know, immediately that's not so. Where do they get these ideas from? Well, I, I think it's just, uh, it's, it's through media, through pop culture, through conversations. It sounds sophisticated. I mean, this is, this is one piece of the luxury beliefs idea is that because it's so uh, uh, embedded within, conventional wisdom and common sense that, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, your, our grandparents understood. They didn't have to read a research paper to understand. You had two parent families. It's probably a good idea. But the way that you stand out and distinguish yourself is taking an oppositional position to conventional wisdom that, oh, well, the masses believe this thing that they call common sense. Well, the way for me to demonstrate my sophistication and my expensive degree and my unusual insights is to say, actually, two-parent families aren't important and kids can flourish in every single home and environment. And it's really just sort of this reductive materialism of, you know, there was this study that came out uh, a few years ago. Uh, Brad Wilcox, really interesting sociologist, was an author on this, where they found that if you wanted to equalize educational and occupational outcomes for kids raised in single-parent homes versus two-parent homes, you know, if you want them to have the same rates of graduation and earnings and so on, it would require a transfer of roughly $58,000 uh, to two single-parent homes. Uh, and if you gave them $58,000 a year from birth to age 18, that this would equalize the outcomes. And that's like a very sort of narrow way of thinking about child-rearing, I think. Because one way to think about this is if you just go up to a kid and say, hey, you know, a kid raised by two parents, and tell them, we're going to take your dad away, but it's okay because we're going to give your mom $58,000 a year, but you're never going to see your dad again. Uh, you know, will you take that deal? No kid is going to say yes to that, right? Like that child would be that child is shattered is shattered yes. by that deal. Exactly, and, this, and everyone knows this. Everyone who works with kids knows this, and everyone who works in psychology knows this. Can they recover? Yes, they can recover. Are they resilient? Yes, but it puts them at grave risk. That is adverse childhood experience numero uno. And then mm -hmm. there'll be more from all they need is two more, and their risk of mental health disorders goes through the roof. And it's pretty easy to get two more when poor mom is struggling on her own to, to make, make a go. Yes. Yeah, and I, I saw that, uh, you know, I'd mentioned my adoptive parents separated mm -hmm. and my adoptive father stopped speaking with me. Uh, and so I was raised for a time by a single mom and she was working full time and she was doing the best she could. And most single moms are doing the best they can. But just, you know, it's just mathematically one person has less time and attention and resources than two parents. Well, and so naturally- And, and by uh, the way, you're, 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 what's interesting, Rob, is also I thought, I was thinking about this the other day, you're not saying that, that there has to be a man and a woman and they have to stay together because the, the woman your mom was involved with, you described to me as somebody that was a great, a great relief to you. You liked her a lot. She was a great relief to have more manpower, another person there, male or female. And she had some, I, I'm going to say it publicly, the way you describe it in the book, some sort of personality trait, personality disorder traits and stuff that made things a little chaotic, but you still liked her. She was still very effective. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so shortly after the divorce, and you know, it was raised by a single mom, but my mom, adoptive mom, fell in love with a woman uh, named Shelly, and we talk about her in the book. And together, they raised me through my adolescence. And yeah, it's two parents. Yes, it's two moms. It's not a mother and father kind of thing. But together, they had twice as much time and attention and resources. And yeah, 
and stability. And it was yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, yes, it was two women, but they they ran the home as if it were kind of a conventional family where we had family dinners. They would monitor me, hey, how's homework going? How's school going? Checking in on mm-hmm. my grades and all of those kinds of things that even if kids rebel and push back against it, it was nice to have those boundaries. And you know, it's funny. It was it was two women. I, I I've written about this uh, some of my Substack posts where there was one point where uh, you know we we were financially struggling and we had to. Um, uh, if there was a period where I would stack firewood and we would have this fireplace, and that was that was the source of heat in the home. Once we learned that that was less expensive than central heating. And this was Red Bluff, California. The winters could get you know down into the low 30s, which for Californians, that can be pretty frosty weather. And I argued with them about this chore because they wanted me to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to uh, uh, start this little you know fire in the fireplace so that when they woke up for work by 6.30, 7 o'clock, the house would be warm and they could be comfortable as they prepared for their work day. And I argued with them. I was 13 years old and I would say, this is ridiculous. You want me to wake up at 5.30? And my mom and Shelly sat me down, these two, you know, older, middle-aged women. Uh, neither one, well, Shelly did go to college, but she went to night school. It was kind of a different thing. My mom didn't go to college, just working class uh, uh, parents, these two women. And they said, like, Rob, you're the man of the house. You know, you're, and Shelly said, you know, my, your mom and I, we work hard to pay the bills and you're the guy and, you know, you have to contribute. You have to um, help with the household now. You're getting older. And once they told me that, you know, that, that term man of the house, you know, I, I was just um, weirdly flattering to my 13 year old brain. And I thought, okay, you know, it, it, now it's not this imposition of, oh, I got to wake up at 530. It's like, I'm helping my family. And that was, uh, you know, a, a sort of a reframe that helped me. Uh, and, you know, little lessons like that, they were really helpful to have those two parents around and to watched out for me and imparted, you know, little lessons and little reframes like that. And I carried that forward with me later on. Um, talk about that memory in the book. And so, yeah, it's not just about a mother and a father. It's just two adults who have the child's best interest in mind and put their needs before their own. And when it, uh, you know, I was just thinking about the luxury beliefs and how you describe particular people at Yale or these people who come up with these um, against the conventional wisdom notions that they've, we have figured it out. That that is one of the scariest terms I ever hear in humanities, particularly. And the other was society needs to move beyond. Those are two extraordinarily <laughs> dis- destructive and scary things. That if you look at the sweep of history, when people say those things, horrible things happen to people. And I can't think of a single instance in history where that's not the case. Whether it is Lenin, who thought he knew best, we figured it out. We, we you know, we need to move beyond. This is a, this is the new world, or Marx, or whether it is the Jacobins or the Sanculot, or whether it is the uh, Oliver Cromwell, for God's sakes. There, there's always these trends that come along uh, in human history and in societies that are catastrophic. When people move away, not just from conventional wisdom, really, it's from the foundational behavioral preferences of the structure of society throughout human history. And we've done this again and again. And it doesn't end well. And we seem to be in a huge trend of that right now. Do you, are you familiar with John Rawls, the philosopher? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Veil of Ignorance. Yes. 
Yeah, I blame him for some of this stuff. <laughs> he, he he was he is the he is the the darling of people that that come up with these horrible ideas. But but let, I got to take a little break. But I, I want to get into if you don't mind a little philosophy and and sort of let's talk about that a little bit. Some ideas about why it's happening. Where is this going to go? Why does it keep happening in history? Why don't humans learn that that there are certain embedded wisdoms not that you shouldn't have options you should do what you want that's not my point at all but to, to declare that certain things are dead societies move beyond it's you know what's the other thing you said uh, we figured it out oh you figured it out a 22 year old college student you figured it out and 3,000 years of human history has nothing to say oh good it, that's got to go well we'll be right back after this as a physician, I am deeply concerned about efforts to erode the doctor-patient relationship. And as medical freedom continues to come under assault, I'm on a mission to empower you to be able to take care of yourselves and your family the way you want to. I urge you to get this medical emergency kit from The Wellness Company. It contains essential prescription medication you should really always have on hand. Here's Dr. Peter McCullough, Chief Scientific Officer. It's a very broad and diverse medical kit. can handle everything from a urinary tract infection, a fungal infection, a bronchitis. People can, you know, via telemedicine, uh, get their questions answered and get on the right track. But it's basically an at-home formula. Yep. For the first time, people, instead yep. of being uh, uh, held captive by an urgent care or by a doctor's office or an ER, they can actually do this themselves at home. Save yourself the weight and the hassle and feel better faster. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC for 10% off. That is drdrew.com slash TWC for 10% off the medical emergency kit. Are you one of the millions of American women and men dealing with premature hair thinning and hair loss? Or maybe you're scared about inheriting that thinning look because it runs in your family? Start 2024 with a real solution that delivers results without the harsh side effects or unwanted chemicals and no need for prescription. Provia uses a safe natural ingredient, Procapil, to effectively target the three main causes of premature hair thinning and hair loss. By supporting healthy scalp circulation, the delivery of nourishing nutrients, and healthy hair follicle anchoring to your scalp, Provia guarantees more hair on your head than in the shower or on your comb. Right now, new customers save over 50% plus free shipping. Every introductory package includes a full 60-day supply of Provia serum for daily use, plus the Provia Super Concentrate for faster, more noticeable results. Don't wait. Order now to save an extra 10% and get free shipping at ProviaHair.com forward slash Drew. That's P-R-O-V-I-A-H-A-I-R, ProviaHair.com slash D-R-E-W. You know, I was looking at Peter McCullough in the uh, little video here, and uh, we, I had the great good pleasure of spending the weekend with him, and I am of the belief that he is going to change how we reproach viral illnesses. He's got some ideas that I am just uh, gobsmacked. And, by the way, in addition to that emergency kit, you get a travel kit from TWC. This, these are, this, I help put this together. It's things I give my patients when they travel. Whether you go somewhere where there's a lot of infectious diseases or not, you should have these things with you if you are traveling. You should get access to them, and you can with a click of a button. It's easy at TWC. So let's bring Rob Henderson back in. Do follow him on Twitter and Instagram. You will learn something if you do so. And, and before we talk a little philosophy, Tell them about your Instagram. What are you, what are you doing there? What, what is it that you're just, you, you just think catch your eye and you underline it and send it up for us? Or, you, or do you have a, are you building a case? I, I'm, no, I'm not really building. There's no, there's no hidden agenda necessarily. It really is just um, 
I read a lot. Um, I think a lot, and I spend a lot of time just sort of browsing articles and scientific papers and books and anything that catches my eye. I'll just take a photo with my phone, and I have like a little backlog, and I'll just post them. You know, six or seven of them a day on my Instagram story. And you know, it just started out as a like a side distraction, something you know, if I needed a break from actual reading, I'll just post things that I'm reading on social media. <laughs> and now I hear people telling me, you know, I'll wake up in the morning with my coffee and I'll read your Instagram story, and that's like, oh, six interesting yeah. tidbits that day. And uh, yeah, and, you know, I never thought about it that way, you know. But that's like, you know, it's nice that people are out there. And I know people are busy. Most people don't have time to sit down and read a 400-page book. People have jobs, they have lives, and things to take care of. But you know, if they can get an, inter- an interesting tidbit on Instagram or Twitter or through conversations like this, I think that's great. Just multiple sources of information, helpful. Yeah, I agree. And and just I've often I've kind of wondered what what you think. You know, what what makes you stop and underline something? Is is it you thinking to myself, I didn't know that, or is it you thinking, oh, oh that kind of is, emphasizes something I knew, or is it a, a an integrated construct I hadn't thought about, something like that? I think all of the above. Um, yeah, if it's mm. if it's novel or or interesting, I'll highlight it. If it's something that I I had some sort of dim awareness of, but it puts it into words, uh, sort of makes it concrete. Mm. That helps too. I mean, I was just reading something recently about uh, chimpanzee troops and how you know alpha male chimps uh, will become enraged when they see other males mating and how they become very violent. And you know, this is something that I think is kind of at odds with like the way that that you know, there's this like red pill pickup artist community. Uh, and they'll say like, oh, if you're an al- you know an alpha male as a human, you know you shouldn't care if other people are hooking up and having sex. It's not a big deal to you, what have you. Uh, but then when you look at the animal kingdom, actually the alpha males are very territorial, and they you know they they become enraged when they see other males with uh, mating with with females. And I just thought that was like an interesting contrast. And so I posted that on Instagram just because you know that's something something clicked there of this sort of weird online you know niche sub community versus what's actually going on in the animal research. So it, it's interesting to me that in my own sort of reading on these, you know, you're, this is, these are areas I've been very interested in a long time too. And uh, I, I sort of found myself in primatology at a certain point, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I'm, I didn't know you were there. I didn't know that you, you were there now because <laughs> you start, you start looking at the, the motivational states and the drive states and you go, where, I wonder where those came from. And and instead of denying that they're there, which is what academia does, you you should strive to understand them and think, oh, those must be very powerful. How do we morph them so they don't overrepresent or move us in re- in directions that are potentially destructive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I one of the phrases that I've I've heard from you, Drew, is uh, reality on reality's terms. Of you know, here's how people are. Here's what human nature is, and you know, you can channel it and you can contain it and you can direct it into a productive direction. But if you deny it, or if you have this idealized view of what humanity really is, this, you know, the the Rousseauian noble savage idea or something of, you know, actually, if we just eliminate all boundaries and constraints that we can live in some kind of utopia, um, yeah, that, that leads to catastrophe. And, and you know what? And just a sidebar on Rousseau. He was a total asshole. He uh, he carted around a woman his entire adult life and used her used her as a sexual, just sort of object. Uh, she had five children. She forced him to leave every single one on the steps of a uh, orphanage, which was common in pre-revolutionary France, and the survival rate was about ten to twenty percent. Uh, so he was you know forcing this woman to commit her children to die. 
Uh, it, it's just he was such an asshole. I mean, like, beyond, and then we then he, little little known fact, he got in a, in a carriage accident. He was run over by a carriage, and when he woke up from that, he was unconscious for a minute. Uh, his slow paranoid preoccupation with Voltaire set in, and I think that had something to do with the head injury. But in any event, just a little couple of Rousseau tidbits. But uh, what did I want to say? I wanted to get into the 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 other philosophers, you know. Um, so so what do what does academia say now? Uh, I guess I was going to mention the post structuralist, where they're taking the position that everything is created by society. Man is a tabula rasa; it's the right. em complete empty skull that gets filled with society. What do you say to the, these these academicians that maintain that? I mean, it's it's total nonsense. I mean, I, I will say that psychology seems to more or less have held the line. I think sociology and anthropology and some of these other disciplines, I mean, there, there are good scholars within those disciplines, but as a whole, they are drifting more and more into that sort of blank slate, you know, society, everything is a social construct, a cultural construct. Um, and yeah, I think at least, you know, within, within my area of psychology, especially evolutionary psychology, there is sort of that foot in biology, a foot in animal research, in uh, understanding cross-culturally that humans can vary, but there is that kind of underlying nature that we have. And I think that's, yeah, it's just an important thing to, to recognize that there are sort of well, limits I'm, I'm to glad what, to what hear. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that evolution of biology, evolution of psychology is back because biology is evolution. Psychology at its core is biology. And so, of course, evolutionary psychology has merit. There was a lot of criticism 10, 15 years ago as it being sort of just so, they, you know, just so arguments, just so explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember David, uh, what is the guy up in, at Washington? Help me. Well, there was David uh, Very, Buss. very famous. Buss, David Buss, yeah. uh, was really under attack for a while. Like, this guy's a great psychologist. And I, I'm just really, I'm, you're giving me some hope here to know that things are kind of, the clouds are clearing a little bit. I mean, there's always a little bit of a skirmish and a bit of a conflict. I mean, even within psychology, evolutionary psychology, you know, it, it does it does get uh, you know a, a, the occasional uh, detractor and critic and so on. But by and large, I mean, there's still a lot of good papers being published in high quality journals by top scholars. And so, yeah, I mean, I mean, evolutionary psychology it's just rooted in something that's very real, and you know, it, it's not it, it's not going to easily away you can't uh, you can only fight human nature for so long so well the the way i you know you know spending many years working in psychiatry i mm. i i would say that on average uh we used to we used to say this about alcoholism we would say this, this is the clearest way to say this the most accurate way to say this that the disease of alcoholism which is a behavioral psychological biological condition the condition of alcoholism is accounted for on the basis is is it? How do they? I want to say it with great accuracy. Is accounted for on the basis of, of is sixty percent accounted for on the basis of biology alone. So sixty percent of the disease is accounted for on on biological basis only, and it is a necessary ingredient for the illness. It's not a sufficient reason, but a necessary. So you have to have it, and then it has to be activated. And it's about sixty percent that. If you have it, you know that it will it will go on to manifestation to to expression. 
So, so to yeah. to that extent, I don't mind the back and forth. I mean, because there are, there is environment, there is environmental input on the biology. There's no there's no denying that. That there absolutely is, and if we can refine that and make it better and impact the biology more effectively in some way, fantastic. But to mm -hmm. deny one or the other or deny the importance of biology, that is it's devastation. Yeah, well, so, having that knowledge so the, of, of genetics is helpful too. I mean, there's a there's a great book by a behavioral geneticist, Robert Plowman, wrote this book, Blueprint, and he talks about how he, he was able to do this polygenic scoring. He basically found out that he was at high risk for obesity, and he takes this knowledge and he essentially uses this to help his environment he or shape his environment. He makes sure that he doesn't mm -hmm. have high uh, calorie snack foods around and sugar. And he makes sure that he avoids certain areas where he might be tempted. And so some of this knowledge is very useful. It's good to know that we have a nature, that we have genetic propensities because it can help you avoid catastrophe. Look, just I. there are 30 common DNA repair abnormalities you can test for. I tested, I have one, I have Lynch syndrome. So now I get colonoscopies every year and that will reduce my risk. And that's that's sort of how this all works, everybody. To deny the the, the, the biological is, is as you said, your great, great, great peril. Uh, so, so let's go back to um, Rawls and these, you know, we've now we now we know the answer and... <laughs> Uh, wh wh why do you think this happens periodically through human history? What, I, I, is, it, is it? I read a book recently that theorized it was because of ossified, ensconced elites. That elites will do what they have to do to protect themselves. And the more ossified and the more aged, the more they will do things to sort of, I don't know, not, uh, create less competition from up-and-comer? I, I don't know exactly what the motivation would be. But do you think there's anything in that, or what might you think it'd be? Well, so that reminds me of Peter Turchin's theory of intra-elite conflict. So he's a, I think he's like a mathematical biologist or something. He, he recently wrote oh, a great book I think book that might be the guy. Times. Yeah, yeah so it's the book. That's about, the book. That's, that's yeah, the yeah. book I was reading, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's a really great book. Um and he writes, so I think he, he says that societal instability, there are sort of two main factors. One was intra-elite conflict. And this is the main driver of societal instability, where there are always, in any society, a limited number of seats to be an elite. So, you know, he, he talks about the modern U.S. Like, if you look at the number of millionaires per capita since, you know, the 1980s, it's actually increased over time. So more and more rich people, adjusting for inflation and those kinds of things, more rich people but there are still only a certain number of senators. There's only one president. There's only a certain number of Fortune 500 companies, uh, editor positions at elite uh, uh, media outlets, and so on. And so you have more and more people vying for a small number of seats, and these they become more cutthroat and more sinister in their willingness to backstab and to betray, and this creates societal instability. And then that other piece that he talks about is um, popular immiseration, you know, widening inequality, that things seem to be diverging more and more. And I mean, it's interesting. He focuses a lot on economics, as a lot of social scientists do. They talk about poverty and inequality, and those things are important. But I think right now, you know, in the U.S. today, there are poor people, but poverty looks different today than it did 60-plus years ago. You know, poverty in our grandparents' generation and before, I mean, it used to be, you know, if you were poor, you may not actually get to eat, whereas today... People still do go hungry in this country, but more and more poverty looks like, you know, you receive some kind of assistance from the government. You get uh, EBT, food stamps, those kinds of things. Um, but the inequality now, you know, and, and I write about this in the book, is more and more sort of family structure, 
sources of fulfillment, of meaning, of happiness. I mean, there's a widening happiness gap between people who went to college versus people who didn't. Uh, and more and more, your sources of fulfillment are available to you. If you live a sort of comfortable life, you can seek fulfillment in education and travel and interesting hobbies, in your marriage, in uh, relationships, in your community. And now if you go to rundown areas of the country, uh, marriages are deteriorating, families are falling apart. Uh, you're not really going to seek a lot of fulfillment in, uh, you know, you're not going to necessarily have a really interesting and creative career uh, if you don't go on to college. So, you know, you're going to have a job where you clock in and you clock out. And, you know, if you don't have a family to provide for, that kind of job can feel very mundane and meaningless. Uh, churches are closing up. You know, people used to get a lot of fulfillment from their faith, from the community that churches and synagogues and these kinds of institutions would supply. And those are shuttering and closing down. And, you know, after the lockdowns and everything, like what I'm hearing post-lockdown is a lot of old people, elderly people, would go to church. And then after the lockdown, they stopped and then they never resumed. You know, they sort of fell into that holding pattern of, oh, we're not going to go to church on Sunday anymore. And I think that is a, we, we still haven't fully come to grips with what occurred there of how all of these uh, community centers <laughs> closed and then people just didn't uh, resume and, and, and reignite that part of their social life. And so that's what the inequality looks like more and more. And I think all of this is, is contributing. But what's interesting to me too, is that a lot of the, um, the call for revolution, uh, it doesn't come from the poor and the destitute. A lot of it actually comes from people who are highly educated and people who are, objectively speaking, very fortunate. But these are the people who are calling to topple things over and who are very strident. And that to me is interesting. The mass demonstrations, I mean, there was really interesting survey data on who was participating in the political demonstrations in 2020 uh, rioting in the streets, and a disproportionate number of them had college degrees, six-figure incomes, postgraduate degrees, very comfortable, disproportionately white, interestingly, um, especially in sort of major cities. And they were the ones who were saying, we need to tear everything down. And I think that uh, what, what can explain that is that intra-elite conflict, that yes, objectively, they're comfortable, but they're angry because they're at the 90th percentile in society and not the 99th percentile. Wow. That's crazy. I never, th I never thought of it that way. And I read the damn book. Interesting. I also pulled out Bowling Alone recently. That's an old book about how clubs and things are, are been breaking down the United States and, and the source of that. And and I was, uh, I had two thoughts while you were talking. One was uh, Hobbes's description of society prior to uh, sort of building a social structure. I, I, I'm trying to remember. Was it isolated, violent, nasty, brutish, and short? It was something like that. Na nasty. Mm. lonely, brutish. violent, brutish, and short. And But the point is short. And you would talk about the, the grandparents or great-grandparents' uh, poverty. The life expectancy was, you know, it's funny. I, I was watching the um, the series uh, the, the Nick. It was a series about a New York hospital at the turn of the 20th century. And the surgeon who becomes the object of the whole storyline is uh, his his mentor kills himself and he's at his funeral giving them the eulogy and he says at the turn of the a baby's born now at the turn of the 20th century can expect to live to the age of 40 and i thought wow well there we are things are a little bit different right now and then i also was thinking yeah. about somebody said something what the elites are demanding entire in tearing things down or what these this 90 percenters are are uh, demanding 
is it's beginning to sound like an episode or or the description in Woody Allen's movie Bananas, where where there if you remember that movie was you should watch it again. It's it's a little bit uh, clairvoyant for the present moment, but it, it's a, about a essentially a Castro like character that takes over and he starts making crazy demands from uh, from his uh, new power base, and he says, you know, you're gonna have to change underwear can only be changed every three days. And it must be worn on the outside so we can check. And it's like, oh, okay, that sounds familiar to me. Feels like some of the stuff I had to do during COVID. <laughs> so here we are. Uh, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> so, so any, it, I have to kind of wrap things up here, Rob. Is it pertains to that issue? You know, the kinds of uh, ritualized uh, talisman wearing. Uh, you know, sort of cooperation with centralized authority. I, you know, this has sort of been an extraordinary time where that has happened, not just here, but internationally. Yeah, I wonder if you have any insights or thoughts into that and where we're going with all that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. that I think that America is a unique place. I mean, it's a very, the, the economist Tyler Cowen refers to America as a high-variance country uh, where you have people who are extremely obedient and willing to listen to the received wisdom, but then we also have this other side that's very rebellious and very skeptical, and you know, just just uh, sort of suspicious of authority. And that's kind of an undercurrent that's been sort of uh, a mainstay throughout American history. That sort of rebellious streak. And so, I think I talked to you about this, Doctor Drew. Like, you know, I, I visited parts of California where people weren't obeying the lockdown rules, and they weren't wearing masks, and they weren't doing all of those things, and. You know, I just think that we're sort of fortunate to have that, that, uh, you know, if you don't want to, you know, toe that line and you want to explore <laughs> other options for how you live your life, you can still find those pockets in, in the country. Uh, and so, you know, where are we going? I think that the, you know, the elites will always want power. I mean, that's a, there's survey data research I cite in my book about this, about how the people who are at or near the top of society have a very strong craving for status and wealth and power and those kinds of things. And they're always going to want to exert and impose and interfere. There was a really interesting survey from Rasmussen, which <laughs> found that the vast majority of people in the top 1% of society, the, the majority of them think that we should ration electricity and meat to fight climate change. Mm. They think that commercial mm. airlines should close down because, you know, X, Y, Z, climate, climate, and what, what have you. Um, but fortunately, the vast majority of people uh, disagree, and I think more and more people are speaking out. So, so we're getting the so free speech is is winning a little bit. Another book yeah. I read is called "Speaking of Speaking of the Sort of Rebellious Street" called "Albion Seed," and Albion is an ancient name mm -hmm. for the British Isles. And if you look at the genetic makeup and the regions from which most of the British uh, nationals that came over here, it's Scotland, it's Northern England, it's there's Albion Seed, it's Western England. And it, it's people who were, uh, they were essentially the equivalent of, if you watch um, Game of Thrones, they were the wildlings. They were the wildlings. They were, they were the ones that really maniacs, really violent, really tribal. And they came here and the ones that were really crazy decided to put their family in wagons and head through the, the indigenous people's territory. So it's, it's no wonder that we have some of that still speaking of genetics still going on this, this very day. And it does, it does attract people that are sort of, you know, leaving something behind and willing to just take risks and, and uh, you know, tr leave everything to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the U.S. has historically attracted sort of ambitious and interesting people, and 
Yeah, I mean, we were, yeah, we'll, we'll manage. I mean, because like, I, I was in the UK <laughs> during the lockdowns, and I just saw people kind yeah. of keep their head down and listen to the rules. I mean, it was interesting because on the one hand, it was nice. Uh, there was no, it was not politically contentious. It's just like, okay, wear the mask, get mm. the vaccine, no anger, no whatever. Mm. And in America, mm. like on the one hand, it is uncomfortable, that constant political conflict. But on the other hand, it's like, it's nice that people are willing to constantly challenge whatever's going on and to... Hey, you know, they haven't completely I, I'm been telling you, I, I, the French really challenged the youth, the French oh. youth, which I thought was interesting because the youth here yes, wanted to be yeah. compliant. The youth in France were standing up to it. It was very interesting. All right, Rob, it's always great to talk to you. I know uh, for the listeners, we went through a lot of books here today, but this is the one you must read first. It is called Troubled. You must get it now from Amazon or wherever you buy books. You will not be sorry. You will have trouble putting it down. I promise it is not just well-written, but it's a hell of a story. And you will learn. You will learn. Yeah, it's breathtaking. It is a breathtaking story. I, I had an emotional reaction, an emotional ride the entire way. And uh, if again, you look at the back of the book and uh, the Jordan Petersons and the uh, Melissa Kearney's and Nicholas Christakis, all these people are ringing in with uh, kind words about the book. So... Thank you, sir. Appreciate it as always. And when you're out here, or maybe if you, if I, 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 why are you staying in the UK? When are you going to come live in New York or Los Angeles, or what are you going to do? What's the plan? I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, things are up in the air right now. But I, yeah, next time I'm, I mean, either you know, I, yeah, it'd be great to catch up. All right, we'll get, we'll go have lunch somewhere or coffee or whatever. We'll figure it out. All right, good luck with the book. Uh, keep pushing. It takes books take a while. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah. And by the way, once the once the book sale part is sort of settling down, please use it as a springboard to speak from. Because whenever people you know ask you have something to say, you go, well, yes, I wrote a book about my life, and it can it can from now on be something that producers use to understand what what you have to say. And I'm hoping, God, I hope that what you have to offer is going to be something that is increasingly in demand. So here's to that. Thank you, Dr. Drew. This has been great. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Okay. Rob K. Henderson, everybody. That's where you can find him. Rob K. Henderson everywhere. And uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to bring, as I told you at the beginning of the show, a friend of mine, Christina Ferrari, who I've not been with on a television or, or a media project in... <laughs> 20 way too long uh and uh we are we are reunited in a project first to help pets uh this is what we're going to be talking about i a little higher there it is um and so listen health obviously something i'm very interested in well-being longevity and likewise that's true for us pet parents uh we have a place to go now when it gets the family dogs cats even the horses keep them in the best shape possible as a dog dad, dad, I am delighted. There is Pet Club 24-7. You see at the bottom of the screen here. I'm delighted to be working with them. They are a company co-founded by two folks who lost several dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. And Pet Club 24-7 has an array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Coriolis Versicolor with Reishi. You're going to see that Christina's got that one. And also we're going to talk to Kristen, who is one of the uh, current leaders in the company. And uh, the most in demand is the dogs, uh, which is the mush puppies. That's this one. And uh, if I is, is Rex around here, Susan? Is he nearby? Because no. he's dry. I gave him one of these, and he just would not let me alone after the after that. So they love them. It supports immune system, and that of course is supported by many many clinical studies. It's uh, 24-7's uh, mush puppies made here in the USA. No fillers, and it's not addicting. You can't your dog can't accidentally over 
overdose on it. And our dogs are named Rex and Georgina. They love them, as I said. And we checked with our vet, and the vet was very supportive. thought they were a great idea. Mush Puppies also has glucosamine, carotene, and chondroitin for joint health. Great for these old dogs. There it is. There's the products. And the good news is we have a Dr. Drew approved deal for you. Go. There's, there he comes. You heard us talking about it. Go to drdrew.com slash pet club 24-7 for discount. That is pet that is drdrew.com slash P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247. You can also find a link at drdrew.com slash sponsors, and you'll find that special deal there as well. But I'm very Susan, if you can move that camera. Oh, you want to give him one? He's very excited about it. She's gonna Rex went oh, oh boy. Oh, <laughs> he came right. Find, find it. Yeah. So here's his head. I don't know if you if you can move the um remove the banner right uh uh, Caleb, I'm calling Caleb. Come up here. Come up here. Yeah. No, he's doing all kinds of tricks to try to get this thing. Come up here. Come on. Come on. Come on. Oh, there he is. There's Rex. There he is. <laughs> I knew. I knew he'd be good. He wants that. He wants that. All right. All right. I, I'm. I'm excited about bringing Christina in here. So let's bring in my friend Christina Ferrari. There's a cookie for jo Georgina. Susan, where you going? Look. Hey there. Look. Look at you. Sorry Making about Making it work for it. <laughs> it's so good to see you. I can't even keep them in my panty. Oh, it's so good to see you too, Drew. Mm -hmm. It's been way too long. Ridiculous. So hold up the human one. I know you yourself have had a, a, a colossal story with that. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, maybe you ought to tell that story before we go back to the dog. So why, why do you have so much of that one? Yeah. Well, I have my year supply here. Um, in 2000. <laughs> I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and I'm getting a little ahead of myself first, but I want to go back to the time when I actually started using these, which has been almost mm -hmm. 15, 16 years now when I was asked to do an infomercial for them. But before I do anything, when people offer me anything to endorse, I always do my due diligence. I wanted to know about them what was in them, how it works, what they were saying, um, were, what they were saying was true. And so uh, I read everything. I talked to people who took these and who gave testimonials. And I also read all of the, um, the research that, that, uh, that was done by Harvard Medical, MD Anderson, all, all the major hospitals all around the country. And so after I did that, I was convinced I said I would be honored to be able to do this. So um, I started taking it in 2010, and it's really to boost your immune system. Took them in 2010, and then in 2016, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Now, multiple myeloma is the cancer of the plasma of the blood. It's not curable yet, but it is uh, manageable. So um, I took it, and... I went through everything I had to go through to get ready. I wanted to have a stem cell transplant. I didn't want to take pills or be some, somebody's, uh, you know, a person where they do, you do one pill and then they try another and then they try another. I said, no, we're going to do mm -hmm. a stem cell transplant. So we did that. Doctor said to me, I had to be in the hospital for a month in order for my, because when you take, have a stem cell, they wipe out your immune system completely. And before they could let me go, I had to, my, my, uh, um, my immune system had to be boosted to levels where if I go outside and somebody sneezes, I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be safe. So they had to wait for the numbers to come up. So week two, the doctor comes in as they do every day and, um, doctor did, you know, whatever they do. And then, uh, he said to me, she said to me, he took my hand and said, you know what? 
She said, you, you can go home today. And I said, I didn't go home today. It's only been two weeks. And she said, I know it's been two weeks, but you know, your immune system recovered really quickly. And I thought, mm. oh, you know, and I thought, how, you know, how could that be? You know, to myself, I, I knew instinctively what it was. I did not want to mm. tell the doctors at the time that I was taking another a, a supplement because, you know, when you go through these operations, they tell you, you have to stop everything. You can't take an aspirin. You can't do anything. So um, uh, I, I was released after two weeks and went home and I'll never forget what she said to me uh, because basically what this is, is a death sentence when, when uh, it used to be, when I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me you have two years to live. Okay. Oh boy. You have cancer, yeah. you know, you got cancer, you have two years to live. Mm. It was like, you know, everybody's reaction is different, but you know, I thought, Two years. I said, that's not going to happen. No, that's not happening. So I read everything. I did everything I could, you know, and then I'm taking, I'm not, what I'm saying is this boosted my immune system enough for me to still be, the, along with the stem cell, I took these and uh, the Versicolor Coriolis uh, mushroom. It's, it's in force. And um, I have been in remission for eight years now. May 4th, may the 4th be with me. Uh, I'm going to be eight years in remission. Now, the people that went through the stem cells at the same time I did, they've all relapsed, and two of them, unfortunately, have passed away. I'm mm. still here, and I'm very grateful mm. for it. And I, I, I take these every single day, and um, it's made a huge difference in my life and in my health. So, so there you are. The, thus, thus you are advocating on the human side. And then is Kristen here too? She's she's more on the yes, animal Kristen. side. Maybe we can bring her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there you are, Kristen. Thanks for joining us. Oh, oh we don't have sound. We don't we have don't sound have for some she's reason. There. I, she's there. You may, I, you there you are. Now you're there. There we got you. <laughs> you're you're back. So. Uh, it, so tell us about the product on the uh, Christina did a great job of talking about her what she believes to be her benefits from the uh, the Coriolis on the the human front. Um, we are specifically going after the pet twenty four seven where because it just makes sense to us. Our vet supported it completely, and we're, our dogs love these things. Tell us about the product. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you a little bit of why it got started, and that'll explain a lot of why we are where we are today. But in 2017, um, the gentleman that started Pet Club 24-7 lost four dogs to cancer in the same year, mm. all ranging from ages four to 11 years old. So that's very young to be losing them to cancer. And so they were sitting around and they were realizing there has to be something that's causing this. There has to be a huge problem that's causing this. And so they started doing some research and they found that the majority of the foods and treats and toys that we're giving our pets are actually toxic for them. And that's compromising their immune systems along with, you know, poor water quality, poor air quality, the chemicals that we're cleaning within our homes or using in the yard are all being absorbed directly in their bloodstreams. So all of these different things were compromising their immune systems. And I'm sure you have even realized, just think about, you know, 20, 30 years ago, our pets used to live to be 15 to 20 years old. And now the average lifespan is nine years. So after seeing that 
the our pets were being so negatively affected by everything that they're being exposed to, they said there has to be something that we can do about this. And just like Christina had mentioned, they knew of this mushroom, the Coriolis versicolor mushroom and what it had been doing for humans for many years. They knew there were over 400 published studies that had been done worldwide by the top institutions on this mushroom. And so they started doing some research to see if it would be safe for animals because not all mushrooms are safe for animals. And they happened to find a study that was done by University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Care. And what they found was that dogs with hermangiosarcoma that were given the Coriolis versicolor mushroom lived twice as long as the dogs with hermangiosarcoma that weren't given the Coriolis versicolor mushroom. And so they realized it was safe for animals and decided, hey, let's create a fun way to give this to our pets. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to give your pet a pill before or a medication, <laughs> but it is no fun for you. It's not fun for them. You got to trick them and then they spit it out and you have to start back over. So they decided, <laughs> let's make this into biscuits and, you know, let's add it to a handmade gravy and let's make a healthier treat with human grade whole foods that are safe for even people to eat. And let's uh, don't use any of the synthetics or chemicals or preservatives or sugars or anything that's in a lot of these foods that are going into their systems. And maybe we can start to get them the immune support that their bodies deserve. And then their own bodies can then fight back against these cancers, break apart these tumors, you know, help with the allergies, the arthritis, the seizures, the autoimmune problems. And so that's how it got started. And what happened was right when we got the mush puppies, we had some dear friends, Kurt and Gail, that posted on social media that their dog Zenta was going to have to be put down. Unfortunately, she was almost 15 years old and the average Husky lives 12 to 14 years. So that's already a pretty long lifetime. And she had a really bad autoimmune disease for years where her paw pads were peeling off, her fur was coming out in clumps, her eyes were getting cloudy, and she was going blind, mm. and she was in so much pain that she couldn't even walk. They had to pick her up and take her outside just to use the restroom and bring her back in. So, of course, the vet said, this is not a great quality of life. I think it might be time to say goodbye. But they just felt in their spirit, you know, that it wasn't time yet. She wasn't ready yet. And she was still eating. So they asked, what are our options? So the vet, of course, recommended they get a couple hundred dollars worth of narcotics and steroids to keep her comfortable and take her home and pretty much put her on hospice. They gave her two to three months. So as they posted this on social media, we instantly reached out to them and we said, look, we have no idea what these little cookies will be able to do for Zenta, but it's worth a try. You know, at the very least, maybe it will give her a better quality of life with this little bit of time that you have left with her. That was our hope, was to improve her quality of life. So they started giving her these little biscuits called the mush puppies. And four days later, they call us and they say, what did you give our dog? And we were like, why? Because we had no idea if that was good or bad. And they let us know that she was walking on her own. She jumped on the couch after four days, which she hadn't done in a year and a half. And yes, they said, we think it's the mushrooms. We think this treat is really helping her. So we encourage them, keep giving it to her. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens after 30 days. 30 days later, her paw pads are healing. Her fur is growing in, her eyes are clearing up and she's regaining her eyesight. She's walking around. So at that point, they thought this is really special. 
maybe we should take her off of the medications and just give her this natural support and see what her body is able to do for herself. And Zenta ended up living another four and a half years. She was 19 mm. and a half years old and she, we actually, actually lost her to an accident. It wasn't even sickness. It's just, there was an accident. She would probably still be with us today. So once we saw that happen, um, it just took us, it ripped our hearts. And we thought, man, if we could help other animals, dogs, cats, horses, you know, people, if we could help them just get that natural support into their system so their bodies can work optimally and it can do what it was designed to do in the first place, because the same thing we know is happening for people as it's happening for pets. We're just overloaded by toxins. We're exposed to toxins in every single way every day. So the immune system is fully equipped to defend the body, to repair and recover the body, to fight those foreign invaders and to break apart these growths that are happening inside of the body. It regulates hormones, it regulates systems. It's just so intelligent and complex and fascinating when you learn all that's possible when the immune system is functioning optimally. So now six years later, we have countless testimonials on this product. And I really think it's important that people understand that strain does matter especially in mycology when you're dealing with mushrooms and we do have the most potent strain and we also extract it in a proprietary way where we get all of the polysaccharides and that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products as it's getting into the body and we people can be encouraged there are no fillers you know it's all made and sourced in the united states and it it's very very healthy for the body and we just encourage people regardless of what you're experiencing with your pets or even with yourself or maybe you're not experiencing anything at all and you just want to be proactive and not get to the point where you have to make those hard decisions for your pets we just encourage you get it into the system it's just a, a food like you mentioned earlier, it's just a food. It's just a mushroom. It doesn't interact with any medications or treatments. Can't get addicted. Your pet can overdose. As a matter of fact, the more you put in the body, the faster, the better it is for the body. And there aren't any side effects. So it really is a gift that's just dramatically improving the quality of life for both animals and peoples. And especially with animals, people notice positive results within just about a week or so. That's how quickly the body starts reacting once it gets that support. And I'm on uh, Memorial who? Sloan Kettering's website, just really quickly, uh, Christina. And uh, they make important, uh, they, and they're rather, they're rather encouraging about uh, the mushrooms. But they say they say so important to say. Tell your healthcare providers about dietary supplements such as herbs, vitamins, minerals, or natural home remedies, so the doctor can properly manage your care. So there's always, even though Christina is rebellious and doesn't tell her doctors what she's doing, you should not follow Christina's. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there's a, a general rule in my no, life: don't just do don't that. necessarily Go follow, don't no, follow no, what no. Christina's up to. No, no. <laughs> so, but I, I still believe in what was happening, you know, and, and like. <laughs> I, I didn't say when that when I was leaving, the doctor took my hand and said, "You can go home, sweet lady." It made me feel so. You, you go home, sweet God, lady. She really didn't Evidently. know you at all, did she? Yeah. What, <laughs> no, what's no, wrong no, with her? She never met you or something. That's, that's <laughs> right. And she said, "You can go home now, sweet lady." Evidently, God has more things for you to do, and that gave me incentive. And they said it would take about a whole year for me to get my sea legs back before. I would fully recover, but within four to five months, I was up and running like the Energizer Bunny. Amazing. I, like we, like we used to do when we worked together, you know, so uh, it really yeah. made a huge difference in and, my life. And, and so uh, now you're going back into the modeling field. Tell, tell people about that. Oh, 
Well, I turned 74 last Sunday. Okay. So that was, and I can't believe that I was asked by a top New York agency in New York called Iconic Focus Models to come and uh, model again. And it just so happens that these women who run the company happened to be my bookers years ago when, when I was at Ford Agency and on the covers of all the major magazines and all, and they put together and, a and, company. And Christina, and, Christina yeah. Susan and I saw you on, uh, get your mic on Susan, on Love Boat a couple of oh, weeks yeah. ago. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We, we were like, ah, Christina. Oh my God, she was so cute. What did I say on that? That's funny. Yes, it's true. Uh, so, yeah, and I went back and, you know, I'm already on a few covers of magazines again. And I can't. And while I was working, I had forgotten how much I truly missed it all these years where I, you know, I got mm. sidetracked and I became a talk show host. And I had the honor to work with you on that crazy show, Men Are From Mars, and they should believe that, and Women mm -hmm. Are From Venus. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, it was a wonderful experience. But, <laughs> well, okay, well, I take that back. <laughs> I take that's a show. That's a whole other show. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, we, we can went. talk about that in detail, yeah. but but yeah, but you were—I yeah. don't know if you know this, but but you, I would, am I, am I, you tell me, Susan, I'm saying something out of turn. Um, you were her favorite host. I get back, I guess, when you were Steve Edwards. Was that the one you just? Yeah, AM, AM, you were, your AM, AM Los Angeles. Yeah, AM Los you were her absolute favorite. Host oh, you're my favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still oh, I, are. Yeah. Oh, oh, she's still your favorite. Oh, That's good. did you hear? She said that to you, Drew, just now. That no, you're you. Favorite? Oh, oh, you're the best. You. <laughs> you're also a great I thought, chef. Oh, this is so sweet. Oh, thank you. Yes. I learned cooking. so much from you. I bought your cookbooks and I think I cooked everything in them yes. from the baked beans to the, oh, she has the best baked beans in yes. her. You can't get that cookbook anymore though. I had to pay like 50 bucks well, for it on well, the, got, on you the have black market. Else. You have well, something else out right now, don't you? Yeah, I have something book? that doesn't yeah. cost 50 bucks. So they're, they're, it's a living cookbook. I have a series of 15 of them coming out. The first one is only on pasta. I'm working on the one now for salads because spring is coming. And uh, I, I do it through legible. Legible um, is an ebook company that produces all of these millions of these books. But right now we're concentrating on mine. Uh, it's like I said, it's the first of 15 and you could go there and what it is, you can have a live actual experience in it because I, it's living. You can go on it and you can see where the recipe, let's say for a marinara sauce, you go there and it will, I'll show you how to make it live. And then the first of its kind ever in the world, we are the first people to do it. We have a live AI Susha. So Susan, if you have any oh, wow. questions and you want you want to know Ooh. how to make through a delicious dish of pasta and and let's say yeah. you, you ask it a question like, I have three quarts of water, how much salt should I put in the water? And he'll tell yeah. you. I call him Chef Al. Maybe I should yeah. call him Chef Drew. But how do you um, where do you find he, that? I don't think we I don't think we like brought you on to to push your book, but I had to anyways. Um, oh, well, thank where, you. where do we find that? Well, you can go to, let's see, um, there's a, a promo code that you can use in a descript, uh, description. You have to go to a special promo code. It's Dr. Drew 24. And then if you're looking for me, you could go to legible. I'm going to make sure because I don't want to get anything wrong. Legible.com slash my model kitchen. I call my books my model kitchen. I thought I would do a little play on words. And since I'm back modeling, I'm doing my model kitchen. And I love doing it. I think cooking shows, how, cooking for me is love. And I also find cooking mm -hmm. very sexy because it involves all the, the senses, your, your eyes, your sense of smell, your sense of taste. And uh, it, 
it's something that is really, really my passion. So that's what I'm doing. And I have 15 of them to do. So that's all I do all day is I eat and I shop <laughs> and I cook. But um, it's good. And then sometimes also I'll make a salad dressing using the Carioli Versicolor because I understand too, this has nothing to do with anything. Well, I want to get the coffee. You have coffee, yeah. right? Oh, you have wait, coffee oh, with it? I have to tell you, so, so, the coffee. So, so hold on. Okay. Can, can we, does that, does yeah. that, we yeah. have the pet club. I want to get the call to action right. So we have doctor.com slash pet club 247. And everything's there. Right. Including the coffee and everything the human else. Human supplements, okay. coffee, okay. gravy for dog food. Right. So it, they'll eat it. it. It's it's hard for yeah. me to. There's other stuff. There's I think they have like bison bites or something for the dogs too. Oh, I love and then they have little like um, chewies. They have the what are those um, horn things that you chew? The dogs chew. Mm. What is that? Christine? You can't quite see it. Are you eating? Yeah, What's she eating? They have antlers. These are not biscuits. No, they're not. No, these are double chocolate chip cookies. You can give them to babies. Oh you can give them to little kids, and they can eat chocolate chip cookies. I love them. Yeah, those are them. good too. You have oh, some of those oh, in front of you, Drew. Mm, not really good. So I, we, I love Christine. I, I have done I'm my telling dinner. you, she is the best chef I've ever met. I and know. I followed her. I Thank used you. to go to her parties. I used to learn how to cook. I I went from cover to cover in her her sure. uh, book, the the first uh, the first one that you had, the first cookbook. And I swear the pages oh, were yeah. all like covered with food, and <laughs> and I still have it. I still use it. And I mean, seriously, this oh, woman knows her food definitely. So. So I, I haven't done my due diligence on the human side, but I have on the pet side, so I can fully endorse what we're doing there. Uh, and uh, people can do their own their own research, their own due diligence as they please. Um, so let's make sure we, you, uh, Christina, you said there's a Drew24 code or something. Is that for a discount? Susan, yeah, there's, no. Well, yeah, the current, it, well, it, so the current it's, promo it's, code, uh, code says it gives you a month free membership to Legible Unbound. So you could go oh. there and it enables the readers to access uh, the first My Model Kitchen book as well as millions of well, ebooks and audiobooks. That's for Christina's so cookbook. That, oh, okay, got it. That's for yeah. the book. Yeah, See, I'm and, supporting your cookbook too. But if okay. they go to drdrew.com slash pet club 247, yes. then that's the one. It automatically right. has the discount built in. You don't have to use a promo code. You get 15% like off. Yeah. I, it confused me at yes, first. I, was made, I made sure and I was, I was like, I don't Quick. see a discount. But they said, if you look in the small print, you see the list price and then we get 15% with that link so quick question and you know it's uh, funny because Christina is this is so this many you on the cover of Cosmopolitan yeah yeah of course is that you yes, of course I've been clicking you. googling yeah. and I'm like there's no way these all these are her we have a wow. we have a millennial in the house so okay <laughs> Caleb, <laughs> Caleb, Caleb. Pages and pages in, in the 19- of stuff she's done. No, 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 no. In the in the 1970s, she was the it person, the it woman. Oh, she was it, the, it, the right? Google she, results never end. Like it's just constantly pages yeah, and pages of I'm covers sure. and wow, modeling. She's and, wow, amazing! <laughs> wow. And then, look, and Dr. she's Dr. nice. Dr. Drew and I look. Oh, thank you, thank you. So are you, uh, Doctor Drew and I are Q-tips now. Look at us with our hair. <laughs> <laughs> I know you guys need a, a talk show again. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Do, do, do another talk show again. Oh, I, that, I that, we, someday we need to, I, I wonder if we should ever do, like get Sam Phillips and the three of us really decomp- like publicly talk about that experience. Was she bad. was the bad girl on the show. We were like mommy and daddy yeah. having to tone this, this mm-hmm. girl down. She was a blast. Yeah, yeah. We, nothing, she has no filter. No filter at all. Do you remember Sam? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, uh, I wonder if yeah. she's still alive. Oh yeah, she's around. She oh. was she was a, she was living with my <laughs> intern over at KBC. She was wild. She she I've I've had contact with her. Oh god, I'm glad. So yeah, no, she's fine. <laughs> um, all right. So Kristen, have we have we uh, run the cycle here? Have we gotten done everything we need to do in terms of educating people about the products and uh, giving the call to action and making sure people understand? So Christina, do you have any recipes with like with the mushroom coffee well, in maybe it. Maybe talk about the coffee first. Like, could you do like a oh, a, a steak rubbed with the mushroom yes. coffee? Yeah. You know how, do, have I, you ever done that? No, I haven't, but I do make a, uh, because my last book, Food for Thought, is all about health and well-being for the brain and all that. And I make, you know, like processed sugar, as you were saying, Kristen, not only bad for our pets, but for us as well. I came up with a recipe mm. for uh, um, uh, a chocolate mousse. And in the chocolate mousse, um, I put some coffee in it. I like an espresso, but I'm I'm going to put in the coffee, of uh, the coffee that you you guys have. What what is it called anyway? Is there a name for the coffee? Yeah, it's I'm going to use the coffee. Yeah, I'm going to cook with it, and I bet you it's going to be wonderful because when you get this package, you can already smell the aroma of the beans. But then when you open it, the aroma just knocks you over because it it smells. Like you're standing in the fields of Colombia, you know, and all the, the beans. It's just so, it's so intoxicating. And I have to say, and I'm not saying this just to say this, it is the best coffee I have ever had. It's smooth, mm. it's creamy, and it's not, you know, when you, sometimes when you have coffee, it's a little off or it's, you know, mm. my mouth is, why is my mouth watering? It's only coffee. Mm. Uh, Especially decaf coffee, because almost all decafs use bleach and all kinds of chemicals to eat it. This this just uses CO2, so it's completely chemical-free. So even the decaf is delicious and smooth and just has such a cozy, warm taste to it. And it doesn't give you that acidic feeling in your stomach. Exactly. That's the word I was looking for, because sometimes you can taste it. What is the name of it? Coriolis Creek What is the name of it? Okay. I sorry we didn't have the sample. We drank it and somebody <laughs> threw the bag I looked, away. I so for mine, mine's gone. I, I drank it too. It's gone because I looked everywhere in my kitchen, so I have to call and get some more. <laughs> but it's also good for you, you know, you get a little oomph in there. Well, we're happy to have you guys on board. We're happy to part of I know, I'm so excited. Yeah, Susan is very I haven't excited. seen Christine in so long and I've missed yeah. her so much. Yeah, we miss Thank Christina. You, well, we she to- loves this product. We we our dogs are old and we're looking for ways to make them better and they, they've been a little wonky this last they love months. these cookies i've been yeah. giving them a cookie every day in the studio rex gets two and georgina gets one and they they just gobble them right down so we'll so. keep you posted yeah. on how they do and Kristen, yeah. anything to wrap up here no just thank you so much for allowing us to come on your show and share what's sure. happened with this and hopefully it can help a lot of your listeners and i, I, nice. I just and- may say may may say so myself I do not come on and talk about, I haven't endorsed any products, but I have to say this has made the biggest difference in my life. And I, and I'm so grateful that I have it. And I mean, this sincerely is probably one of the, the better things that I've done for myself because it's made a big difference, especially in the well, way it's, I feel. And, yeah. yeah. So, and, and your, I'm your just enthusiasm and just now. being able to, yeah. I, yeah. I know that. And you've said that to me on the phone and just to be with you again, it was an exciting opportunity. So oh, I wouldn't miss it. And so, so nice. congratulations on this. It's Pet oh, oh there's one other thing that I realized when I was Uh-oh. scanning through the, the website, because I just ordered some stuff myself. Okay. Um, 
They have cat goodies too. Oh, and horse. Yeah, and, and, and horses. Horse. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. And horses. So I'm assuming um, there is you know, uh, yummy as, as. Go ahead. You're assuming? No, no, I was saying that. Uh, Alexandra, they take in where she lives, they take in uh, little ponies that have been abused and she's been giving wow. them the little court. Yeah. And they, you know, it's made a different, I could see their coats and, and, and their, I mean, the main, everything is coming back and because they are in an environment that's loving, they have just thrived and now they're getting the, what they need in order to keep their systems healthy. Mm-hmm. Or so you're seeing you're seeing how we're catching up on so many things. That's that's her daughter Alex and her Instagram, which I recommend most highly, is Alex Cooks. Uh, and <laughs> Alex it's hysterical. T. Alex T. Alex T. Cooks. Alex T. Cooks. Okay, Alex uh-huh, T. Cooks. Alex T. Cooks. Uh, yes, yes. Can we have Christina back? Oh. Yeah. Sure. Oh, oh yeah. I want to have you back again one day. Oh, thank you. We, yeah, we need to do this again. Not not, not ten years from now. Susan, because that's how long it's, no, well, it's been no. a long time, several years. Let's, I'm, let's sl- I'm so slating you that. in. We're going to get you slated in. You. <laughs> All right, you guys, thank you for being here. <laughs> we've uh, in, we've indulged Christina and myself long enough. and We will we will bring Christina back, and uh, I'll go eat, eat drink my coffee. So uh, appreciate yes. you guys, uh, and uh, we'll be talking more about this as time goes on. So appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. You got thank it. You. Of course. Help God myself. bless you guys. Well done. And so coming up, we have, uh, as, as always, a uh, loaded week. Uh, this tests Laurie on Wednesday, Willie soon tomorrow. That's on Friday. Brett Weinstein on March 5th. Oh, no. Yeah, March 5th, right. Dave Rubin on March 6th. I was because I am going to be out that following week. I, I've got something I really can't talk about yet. Kevin, wait, Bass you're coming g- in. March 5th? You're no, gonna no, no, be, no, the first, no. The week before the that. The week before that. Yeah, I'll be the 28th to the 1st, something like that. Okay. Um, yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Corolla. Coming stress in here. Emily out. She might uh, kill you. Jimmy Fail is coming back. So we got a lot of stuff. Uh, My man. Coming down the coming down the road here. And uh, we're gonna actually going to go see a Corolla right now. I'm buying my mush puppies right now. Right, we we got to go tape something for V-Shred. So. Oh, now? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> we don't have to well, be there until 7. Okay. All <laughs> it's right, time we're for dinner. Go we'll and, go get uh, some mushrooms. Let's we'll go. We'll be here. Uh, all week is, I uh, know Tess Laurie is at uh, noon. She's in the uh, UK. So that'll be noon for that one. Right, Caleb? Am I getting the time right? E- I'm looking uh, at yeah no no eleven eleven a.m. eleven a.m. No, yeah on Friday yeah eleven a.m. That's how I'm looking at my schedule here okay eleven a.m. Uh, and uh, and then tomorrow is three Pacific time so thanks for loving Christina too thank you guys and we will see you tomorrow three o'clock Pacific time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.